Good evening, church. Grace and peace to you all. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Galatians. Paul's letter to the Galatians will be in chapter 4 this evening, looking at verses 12 to 20. Galatians 4, 12 to 20. And the title of my sermon this evening, loved ones, is Living Hope in the Cross. Living Hope in the Cross. And once you find your place in your Bibles, loved ones, please stand with me for the public reading of Scripture. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this evening. Galatians chapter 4, verses 12 to 20, Living Hope in the Cross. This is the word of God, church, starting here in Galatians 4, verse 12. Paul the Apostle writes, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is the word of God, church. Let's go before him in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for this day that you've given us. We just thank you, Lord, for the grace to be able to gather in your name, Lord, just to sing songs of praise to you and just to hear more, again, of the opportunity to to be senders of your gospel, Lord, into the world to those who are needy of of salvation in you, King Jesus. And God, ultimately, Lord, to be able to be gathered again, to hear your words um, um, shared with us this evening, to hear the words of life, Lord, how we can help know you better, Lord, and that, God, because of that, Lord, we are able to love you more and because of our great love for you, we're able to walk in obedience all the day more because it is your word that sanctifies us um, to become more like your son, Jesus. And I pray that your word will do just that this evening. I pray that if there's anyone here, Lord, who's just going through so much, um, just just various trials of life, the different pressures, that this word can comfort them, Lord. Father, it can help them just to remind them of the living hope that they have in the gospel of Jesus. And if there is anyone here who, or anyone online who listens to this sermon, that they'll come to realize that they are in desperate need of salvation, that, God, they must be born again, that, God, they must be declared right before you by faith. And I just pray that you just convict them of their sins, leading them to faith in you, and, God, that they will just be able to live for you. And, and with everyone else, Lord, that everyone will be a doer of your word, and that myself, including, that I will not do this by my own strength, but do it by the spirit that you have sent all of us to, to, to walk by. So Lord, we thank you for this time, and we just pray that it is your word going to your people. We lift up these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Maybe be seated, church. American culture is generally aware of the evangelistic influence of a guy named Billy Graham. And yet, many don't know that Graham was not the original choice to become the evangelist he would be remembered as, um, as in history. Instead, eyes initially looked upon another man, another man named Charles Templeton. And Graham and Templeton would become close friends and fellow workers of the gospel. Yet, Templeton, he fell into a series of doubts that led him to leave the Christian faith and become an agnostic. And so where Graham would take his spot and go on to be one of the most influential evangelists in American history, Templeton faded into the culture to do whatever seems right in his own eyes. 
It, it will not be until decades later that a news reporter named Lee Strobel, he interviews Templeton, and he asks him this question towards the end of that interview. Templeton, how do you assess Jesus? And in response, this is what he says. Jesus was the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was intrinsically the wisest person that I've ever accounted in my life or in my readings. His commitment was total and led to his own death, much to the detriment of the world. What could one say about him except that this was a form of greatness? I know it may sound strange, but I have to say, I adore him. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, Everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. Yes, yes, and though, just look at Jesus. He castigated people. He was angry. People don't think of him that way, but they don't read the Bible. He had a righteous anger. He cared for the oppressed and exploited. There's no question that he had the highest moral standard, the least duplicity, the greatest compassion of any human being in history. There have been many other wonderful people, but Jesus is Jesus. In my view, he is the most important human being who have ever existed. And in surprising words, he concludes, I miss him. Therefore, if I was to ask you the same question, how do you assess Jesus? Many of you would respond, well, he's Lord. He's Savior. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the God-man. And yet, so did a man like Templeton. He suffered great doubts about his faith in light of the cultural pressures of his day. And instead of hanging on to the cross by faith to carry him to reasons in settling his doubts, he abandons it as a solution. And it was only after a lifetime without Christ that he, that he admits that he missed him. He misses him. And also, since you, loved ones, today we live in a culture that is more antagonistic towards the gospel compared to Templeton's day, the temptation to abandon the gospel is more prevalent today. And yet, Paul the Apostle teaches you tonight that never abandon your hope in the cross of Christ. That's the main point of tonight's message. Never abandon your hope in the cross of Christ. But why? What reasons does he give us? And you're going to see that Paul is going to present two appeals, two appeals to support this main proposition that you must never abandon your hope in the cross of Christ. So without further ado, let's jump into this first appeal, which is remember when you first believed the gospel. That's the first appeal. Remember when you first believed the gospel. Look at your Bibles, loved ones, at the very first part of of Galatians 4.12. Paul writes, brothers, I entreat you. Become as I am, for I also become as you are. And so we look at our passage tonight in Galatians 4, 12 to 20, and this is actually a major turning point in the letter. Because when Paul asks the Galatians to become as I am, not only is this a command in the Greek, but it is actually the first command in the entire letter. And what this is doing then, this is setting the foundation of what Paul has been laying out throughout his entire letter. What do I mean by that? Well, this is what Paul has been talking about up until this point in time. In the first two chapters of Galatians, Paul has been defending the credibility of his gospel as an apostle of Christ. Why? Well, when Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians, the 
the, 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 the Galatian churches that he originally planted, he found word that they were turning away from the gospel. He even says in Galatians 1, 6, that I am shocked that you were so quickly turning away from the good news of the gospel that I first shared with you when I was, when I was there with you. And it's because of this that he has to remind the Galatians that you are not saved by this false gospel. And what is that false gospel? We had these Judaizers. They were telling these Galatians who were non-Jews that you must be Jewish to be saved. In other words, if you want to be a true follower of Messiah Christ Jesus, if you want salvation, then you must believe in him as Lord and Savior, but you better be doing good works of the law. You better get circumcised. You better obey the feast. And when Paul hears this, like, that's nonsense. You are not saved by faith and works. You are saved by faith in Christ alone, which leads to obediently doing good works to King Jesus. And yet, because of this, they were um, downplaying Paul's authority. And so first, Paul needs to um, authenticate his authority as an apostle of Christ. And as a result, he's authenticating his authority that the gospel that I preach to you, Galatians, and even the gospel that we hear and read it in the Galatians today, loved ones, this was not something that Paul made up himself. This was something that was not from man. If anything, this was a message that was making Paul into a better man because this message is not from man, but it is ultimately from God. That's how Paul begins the letter to the Galatians to authenticate where does it originally come from? It comes from God. He is the source of this good news, which leads them to, 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 to really defend the contents of the gospel in Galatians 3-4, to where he defends its authority and its authenticity in the first two chapters. It is in Galatians 3-4 and 4 that he begins showing from the Bible from the Old Testament, that no one is saved by good works. No one is saved by being a good person, or in this case, doing good works of the law. Why? Because all are under the curse of God's law due to the curse of sin. And yet, at the perfect time in history, God sends his promised son, Jesus the Messiah. He is born under the law. He is born of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. He came to add humanity to himself. He came so that he would redeem a people back to himself. He did so by giving himself up as a sinless sacrifice out of his great love for his people. And as a result, anyone who repents of their sins and believes in Jesus as Lord and Savior by faith alone, you are justified. Or in other words, you are declared right before God, not by you being a good person, but by you believing in the one who is perfect, and that is the God-man who died on the cross, Jesus Christ. And as a result, loved ones, Paul has shown you that you are no longer God's enemies in sin. Instead, you are now adopted into his family. You are now adopted as sons. You are adopted as daughters of God who will not only inherit salvation, but all the promises that God first gave to Abraham. That is what Paul has been speaking on here in Galatians so far. And yet, such a message is so relevant today, right, in our own culture. Because many individuals in the culture today just believe in themselves too highly. They think of themselves too highly. And even when people suffer with, quote-unquote, low self-esteem, the medical professionals in our culture are trained to help patients boost their self-esteem as a solution within themselves. And that's why when you talk to the average person, whether it be your co-workers or your neighbors or the person at the grocery mart, that if you ask them, do you think you're a good person? What do they usually say? Yeah, I think I'm a pretty good person. And even if they say, well, I'm not perfect. Hey, I'm not as bad as Hitler or, or Stalin, right? And yet Paul's point is, is that just as the Galatians are not good enough to be saved, no one 
is good enough to be saved. All have fallen short of the absolute standard of right and wrong. The creator God of the Bible. And as a result, the wages of humanity's cosmic rebellion against him is unfortunately eternal damnation in hell. That's why this letter to the Galatians is so emotionally personal. Paul is appealing to the Galatians to turn away from their unfaithfulness of the gospel and back to their faith in Christ alone. Because if not, they actually demonstrate that they were actually never Christians in the first place. And yet, as we see in our passage today, Paul is optimistic. He is optimistic that they will be restored back to God. And it's with all that in mind that that's why Paul commands here to the Galatians, become as I am. Galatians, become as I am. But what does that phrase mean? And this is so important because this is the, the first commandment in the entire letter. And yet it's going to be this commandment that serves as, as the foundation of how the Galatians should apply Paul's message here afterward all the way to the end of the letter itself. So what does Paul mean by become as I am? Well, to put it quite simply, what Paul is getting at here, he's saying, become like me, Galatians. Look at myself. I am no longer thinking that I am saved by good works. I am dead to works of the law, and I am now alive in Christ by faith in him alone. Consider what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. This is really the theme verse here of the entire letter, but look what Paul says here. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what Paul means to become as he is. If you notice here, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. My old man, my own self, my old self that loved to satisfy my own sinful, selfish desires, all that is gone. That old man is dead. He has been crucified with Christ so much so that Christ died for me for my sins on the cross that I no longer live in that way. Instead, it is Christ who lives in me, and that rubs people in our culture in the wrong way. Wait, you can't tell me I can't live according to my true self? Yes, exactly, because you're always meant to live for Jesus. And so when Paul says, I am dead to myself, I'm alive in Christ, he says, the life I now lived in, I live by faith in God. The same faith that saved me from my sins to give me new life, it is by the same faith that I depend upon Jesus each and every single day to do his glory alone, Why? Because at the end of the day, he loved me and he gave himself for me on the cross. That is what Paul means here when he says, become as I am. He is calling the Galatians to stop their foolishness of thinking they can save themselves and to to repent of that and to embrace like, no, we are saved by faith in Christ alone. And so he is calling them, stop your journey. Stop your journey of denying Christ. Instead, Become like him. Become like Christ, but becoming like me. Imitate me as I imitate Jesus. And yet, if you look at at, at that command, right, that's only the first part. Because what does he say afterwards? Become like me, and he gives the reason, for I also have become as you are. And what does Paul mean by that? Well, in other words, in order for Paul to really share this goodness of the gospel to the Galatians who have never heard of it before Paul came onto the scene, what Paul is getting at is that Galatians, when I first met you all those years ago, I adapted my own lifestyle. I, who I am ethnically Jewish, 
I adapted my lifestyle so that I can live like the Galatians. I can eat their food, understand their culture, um, become like them. And the goal was is that they would not only understand the gospel that Paul was trying to communicate to them, but they will ultimately place their faith in this gospel as well. And what Paul is getting at here is this is his model of how he would preach the gospel, whether it be to the Gentiles, non-Jews like the Galatians, or even to the Jews themselves. That a very helpful passage that kind of captured this idea is, when, is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 20 to 21. I'll read it here. This is what Paul says. He says, To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. He's referring to Jews there. But then continuing on, he says, Now to those outside the law, Gentiles, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. And so what Paul is getting at is that when he would witness the gospel to either Jews or Gentiles, he would adapt his lifestyle so that he can present the gospel in a way that makes sense. And and listen to this closely. Paul is not changing the content of the gospel itself. If that was the case, then he wouldn't care to write Galatians. But the fact that he does write Galatians, he is concerned about how we talk about the gospel. If, if you forget anything from Galatians, remember that the letter of Galatians is meant to teach you how do we speak about the gospel. What is proper gospel speak? That's what the letter of Galatians is all about. It's not about just justification. It's not about just being declared right by faith in Christ alone. That's the heart summary But the whole letter altogether is meant to train you. How do we talk about the gospel and how do we communicate it to our neighbor in desperate need of the gospel? Paul is not changing the gospel message itself. He's not trying to make it more tolerable for the Galatians. Instead, what he's doing, he's adapting his presentation of the gospel so that it's more comprehensible. That when the Galatians hear it, it makes sense to them. And this is something that missionaries do all the time. And Paul was the exemplar of this because think about Paul. When you look at the book of Acts, what was his method of when he would preach the gospel to the, to the Jews? He would go to the synagogue, and where he would start from? He would go straight to the, to the Old Testament. He would point them to the prophecies of Jesus to prove that Jesus is the Messiah to get them to faith in the gospel. And yet, when Paul spoke to the Gentiles, he didn't start with the law or, or the Old Testament because the Jews or the Gentiles, they never received the law. They, they would have understand it. And so what does Paul do instead? He starts with something more broader. He starts with creation. That, that there is a creator God and he has revealed himself not only in creation but also in the Bible. And so when Paul says to the Galatians that I become like you, he is just indicating that I become like you by learning your culture, learning how you say things, how you eat, what you do, so that I can present this beauty of the gospel, this good news to you, and that it would not only make sense, but that you would wish it were true and place your faith in it as being true. And something that's very interesting, just for you loved ones, is that this idea of the, the fancy word is contextualization. It's just trying to make the gospel make sense to those um, who listen to us. And, and, and I think if we think about, well, how, does, how do we best make the gospel make sense in our own culture? I know some of the pastors have said it times in the past, but I believe that the way to make the gospel make sense to your neighbors, those in your families who don't know Christ or your neighbors, is by preaching the gospel um, by, by defending it. It's through the vehicle of apologetics. They're both two sides of the same coin. You're called to preach Christ, but because we do live in a post-Christian culture, people don't really care about the gospel. They can care less if it's true, but it's like, yeah, that's, that works for you. I found something that works for me. And so how do we present the gospel to people who couldn't care less that it is really true? And I just want to share a quote that is very helpful 
on, on, and helping you think about how do we make the gospel make sense in our own culture. As Paul went out of, out of his way to do so for the Galatians, how can we do that in our own culture so that we can imitate Paul as he imitates Christ by sharing Christ with their neighbor? Consider this quote by the French mathematician Blaise Pascal. He once said this, that men despise religion. They hate it and are afraid it might be true. To cure that we have to begin by showing that religion is not contrary to reason, that it is worthy of veneration and should be given respect, um, it, we should make it lovable first, and then make, it, then make the good wish it were true, then show that it is indeed true. In other words, what Pascal recommends is that, you know what, people can care less if religion is true. And he wrote this hundreds of years ago. I think it's a lot worse today in our own culture. And yet, before he can even share the goodness of the gospel, you got to defend that, no, we have reasons to believe in the gospel to be true, like the resurrection or, or the historical manuscripts of the gospel. And yet, what happens if people can care less about those evidences? And what I think Pascal is so helpful in is that you gotta wish these, you gotta get people to wish this is true. You gotta show them to, to see the beauty of the gospel that, you know, you long for community, you long for identity, only the Bible can satisfy that. And once you get people to that point, then you start busting out your reasons like, let me tell you why the gospel is true. And then once it gets into that point, let me tell you what the gospel is. And that gets people like, man, the gospel, like, is this true? Is, is this really possible? Yes, let me tell you about it. That is how I think something along those lines is of how we can make the gospel more comprehensible. Much more could be said about that, but just think about that. How can I make the gospel comprehensible to my neighbor as I live, as I go about my life? Whether it be in my family, my workplaces, at school, all these different things. Ask yourself this question. How can I get this person to wish that Christianity is true? Start from there. Pray to God by the Spirit and work on befriending that person so that any opportunity you get, you can share the good news of Christ with them. That's what Paul does. And yet, despite Paul doing that to the Galatians, he is warning the Galatians to not abandon their hope in the cross of Christ. He is wooing them to return back to the first love, the cross, the Christ of the cross. And yet, and think about this, loved ones, if the Galatians under Paul's teaching can turn away from the gospel, you and I can just as easily turn away from it ourselves. And really think about this. Because I think because we go to a church where sound doctrine is preached every week, um, we, have, we have Bible classes, it's, it's all, all throughout the board, right? If the Apostle Paul preached the gospel, this is Paul, one of the, the foundations of the early church. If he preached the gospel, and yet people who received it and are, are on the danger of, 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 of disowning it or abandoning it, we are not safe from not doing that either. Because just because we go to a Bible-believing church that teaches scripture and we go deep, right? That is not an automatic safeguard. Like, oh, I'm never going to abandon the faith. I'm never going to get to that point. Look at the Galatians. They had Paul as their teacher, and now they're on the verge of, of, of denying this gospel. And this is especially true, loved ones, when the cost of discipleship is high. It's only a matter of time when all of us will be tempted at some point in our lives to deny Christ, whether it be due to the sinful desires of the world, the enemy, or just our own sinful flesh against us. And yet it is during these times in your lives as Christians that I exhort you with this. You must never grow tired of the cross. You can never be bored of the cross because the cross, the gospel, it's not only for you when you first become a Christian and then, oh, cool, that's level one, now I can go to other things, right? No, the cross is the foundation for your hope as a Christian. 
It is the very lifeblood, literally the source of your living hope as a Christian. Because if it wasn't without the cross, then none of us will be here right now. If, 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 if we did not have the cross of Christ authenticated by the resurrection that Christ is Lord, then none of us would be here. Um, we wouldn't have hope. We wouldn't be alive right now spiritually. This is why Paul is so hard to the Galatians. As he says here in Galatians 3.1, he says, Oh, foolish Galatians, you fools, who has bewitched you? Who has put a spell on you? It was before your eyes when I preached to you the gospel that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And so these Galatians, they are fools by thinking that they can find hope in anything else but the cross of Christ. And so loved ones, don't follow their example. Instead, imitate Paul because he imitates Christ. His living hope is in the cross of Christ by faith alone. That is what your hope must be based upon. Your saving faith based on the hope of the cross of what Christ has done all those years ago. And it's when you find yourself in those difficult circumstances, whether it be a physical trial or a spiritual temptation, that you can look back upon the cross of Christ and remember, like, what is my living hope? What is my assurance based upon ultimately? That you have been declared right with God, not by your good works, but by your faith in what Christ has done on the cross. And his work has finished. And as a result, he has resurrected. And we long for the day when he returns because that is the source of our living hope as Christians. And so it's within that, it's within that in mind that Paul presents this command, become like me because I have become like you. He now supports this command by giving two appeals. Two appeals to support this command. And so we're going to see the first appeal, right? Particularly in, at the end of verse 12, all the way to verse 16. And remember, the first appeal is about remembering when you first believed the gospel. You want to become like Paul, to imitate him of depending upon the good news of the cross? Remember when you first believed the gospel yourself. And so, so let's get into this a little bit deeper. So look at your Bibles at the end of verse 12, and we're going to go all the way to verse 14. Paul writes this. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. And so Paul begins the first appeal by saying that the Galatians did him no wrong. And the immediate context gives the answer why. He records here his first encounter with them in his first missionary journey. Paul records that the Galatians knew it was because of a bodily ailment that he preached the gospel to them at first. In other words, because Paul suffered a bodily illness or ailment um, on his first missionary journey, that was the reason that caused him to preach the gospel to the Galatians in the first place. But that then begs the question, what is this bodily ailment that Paul refers to? And much speculation surrounds what this bodily illness and ailment is exactly. Some people say that, oh, maybe that's the thorn in the flesh that Paul was referring to at the end of 2 Corinthians. Some people say, oh, maybe Paul was struggling with blindness, or maybe he had malaria. There's all these different things, and it's, and it's just impossible to know for certain what it was exactly. And yet, what is certain is that the situation forced Paul to pause his journey and stay in the city of Galatia a little bit longer than anticipated and yet, that was good news because that led Paul to preach the gospel of Christ crucified and plant the first churches in Galatia. And yet, in light of that situation, look at how, how the Galatians respond to that reality. Look, at how, look how they respond to, Paul's, to Paul himself and the message when he writes, Though his condition was a trial to them. 
Or in the Greek, it literally puts it this way, and this is so interesting. He says, their trial in his flesh. Your trial, Galatians, in my flesh. In other words, Paul's bodily illness or ailment, it made him so unimpressive physically. He wasn't this bodybuilder or this, this guy that was, you know, um, like, wow, look at Paul. He, he just looks, like, amazing, right? No, like, they looked at Paul and like, who is this guy? Like, this guy is so unimpressive. He's weak. Um, like, who is this guy trying to tell us his message? It was because of that unimpressive outward physique that they had the temptation they had the temptation, the Galatians, to not only deny him as an apostle, but also the gospel of Christ crucified, the gospel that Paul wanted to proclaim to them. And so when Paul says they're trying the flesh, whatever Paul was suffering, it was an opportunity for the Galatians to deny him, right? Like, hey, we want nothing to do with you, Paul. Get away from us. And yet, that's not how they responded. Rather, they embraced Paul. They not only embraced Paul, but they also embraced his message of the gospel, They did not scorn Paul. They did not despise him. They did not disdain him. They did not hate him. They did not reject him. Instead, they received Paul as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. In other words, they embraced Paul in such a way that, hey, you are a very angel of God. You are a messenger of Christ Jesus himself to proclaim this good news to us. We accept you, Paul. And by us accepting you, like an angel of God or like Christ Jesus, we embrace your gospel of Jesus Christ um, as well. And this is very interesting because because if you look at the beginning of Galatians, Paul is very stern um, in correcting the Galatians um, on their apostasy here. Look at what he says in Galatians 1, 8 to 9. Just the, the, the similarity of how they received him as an angel of God. Look at what he says here in Galatians 1, 8 to 9. He says, but even if we... Or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Or in other words, let him be damned to hell. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And so Paul's point is that you, you Galatians, you received me as a very angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. You accepted my gospel. You accepted that you are saved by faith in Christ alone. And the fact that you're turning away from the gospel, I tell you, Galatians, you have no reason to believe in anyone else's false gospel. Because if you do, just know that if any other angel, hypothetically, if it was myself personally or any other false teacher, if they tell you a gospel different from the one that I first told you, they are wrong. They are false. They are not of God. They are of their father, the devil. And ultimately, they will be condemned to hell for such lies. And so the fact that the Galatians originally received Paul and his message, it demonstrated that initially, before they denied it, they were excited. They had this eager excitement to receive the gospel. The fact that they received Paul, despite his outward you know, shortcomings, per se, um, they were just joyful to, be, to, to hear of good news. There's a way to find new life in this broken world. There is a way that we can, we can be free from the curse of sin. There is a way that we can be happy and, and have eternal life in the God who made us by faith alone. They received that with joy. And yet, I just want to take this time. Remember when you f- first received the gospel. How was that for you? I know for myself, I felt peace. Right, I, I know I was a, not a good teenager, and I know I was, I was a sinner against God, and yet once I heard the gospel for the first time, 
I felt utter peace. And even now, I depend upon my hope in the cross because I'm not sure about you, loved ones, but I know that as I grow more like Christ all the, each and every single year, I realize just how much of a sinner <laughs> I really am. And that's, and that's ironic, right? Because as we grow more like Christ, or the longer we become Christians, we become more like Christ. And yet it's by becoming more like Christ I realize how much more of a sinner I am. And that's why we need the gospel each and every single day to encourage us that when you first believe, imagine the peace that you had, the relief, the rest, the thankfulness, the redemption, the joy, the happiness, the love, the mercy, and the grace. You remember when you first experienced that? Remember that and know that you need to depend upon that each and every single day as you live this Christian life until you reach the end in Christ Jesus in glory. All these things, all these emotions is what, is what is present when you first believe and should always be present in your lives as Christians to, to keep you, to, to give you this living hope, to allow you to keep enduring all the day long. And yet it's this reality that the Galatians failed to keep. They forgot about the gospel. They got bored with the cross because like, oh, we can believe in Jesus. We believe in Jesus, but we need to do good works for the law. Like what these Judaizers were saying, and Paul's like, no, that's wrong. That is wrong. It's only by faith in Christ alone. And such a response then, it leads Paul to ask a rhetorical question. Look at what he says in verses 15 to 16. He asks, in light of that, Galatians, what then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth. And so Paul asks the Galatians, what then has become of your blessedness? Because they're now denying the gospel. They have grown, they have grown tired and bored of the cross. And now, do they have such blessedness? The very blessedness they had by believing in Jesus, do they still have that? And another way to kind of think of this idea of blessedness is really think of the idea of happiness or really human flourishing in this life. How could one find happiness in life? How can one experience true human flourishing in this life? Paul says that you Galatians, you first experienced that when you first believed the gospel. You first experienced that joy when you received forgiveness of your sins by placing your faith in Jesus. And as a result, you were born again. You, have, you were given this, this, this new heart to live for God. And now, because of your new relationship with God, now you experience true flourishing because now you're living for the one that you're always meant to live for. We were made for God, loved ones. We were called to live for him all the days of our life. And it was that experience that the Galatians had a happiness leading to true human flourishing by receiving Paul and his gospel, which was leading them from death and sin to new life in Christ. But now they are turning away from the gospel. That's why Paul writes Galatians, right? They are turning away from the good news to a false one. And that's why it begs Paul to ask the question, how then, Galatians, can you maintain such happiness leading to true human flourishing in life if you abandon the very source that can give you happiness leading to true human flourishing in life? And what's interesting is that when it comes to flourishing, it only happens when you believe in the truth of the gospel. It's not when you follow your heart. That's what the culture wants you to believe in. And yet, I actually have a t-shirt of this. One of my favorite t-shirts that I own is out of a passage of Jeremiah 17.9. The passage says this, that the heart is deceitfully above all things and desperately sick. Who can trust it? Because people in our culture says that, hey, if you want to really flourish or really, really have happiness in this life, just do your own thing, man. Follow your heart. And yet that shirt that I have on Jeremiah 17.9, it doesn't say follow your heart. It says don't follow your heart. And I just like wearing that shirt just to make people upset when I'm gone in public and stuff like that. But it's true. 
The Bible's hope for happiness and joy in life, leading to flourishing, is not doing whatever seems right in your own hearts. Our hearts are wicked. Our hearts are sick. Yeah, you might experience some pleasure for a short time, but it's only going to lead to more brokenness because you are dead in sin. And because you're dead in sin, the only consequence or the only end goal of that lifestyle is eternal death in hell. It's awful. And yet, the fact that people experience brokenness on a day-to-day basis due to sin and they do all these things to alleviate it, it is proof that there's nothing in this world ultimately that can ultimately satisfy the desires in your heart. It's only by embracing the gospel then. It's only by the gospel of Christ crucified, by faith alone, that you can experience happiness and joy. Not only in this lifetime, but eternity and the life to come because you have Jesus. You have God. He is the source of all life. He is the source of all love and beauty and goodness leading to true human flourishing. And as a result, Paul grounds this question about the Galatians of flourishing with really a vivid illustration. Look at this illustration at the end of verse 15. He says, For I testify you, Galatians, that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. That's pretty violent, right? You would have gouged out your eyes and just thrown thrown them before my feet. And yet, Paul is given an illustration here. He's not saying that he would have literally asked the Galatians to do this. That would have been crazy. But hypothetically, they would have. What does Paul mean? He's speaking hyperbolically here. Because in the ancient world, the human eye, it was often spoken as the most precious part of the human body. Because if you didn't see, you couldn't work. Just all these different things were just related to the human eye. And so in other words, this idea of the eye, or what Paul is saying here, it's really an idiom. It's a way of of going above and beyond to take care of a person's physical needs. I think a common expression in our own culture is that, oh, he gave the shirt off his back to that guy, right? Like he went above and beyond. He, he, He bent over backwards to be able to help this person in need. And yet that's kind of what Paul is getting at here. When Paul says, if possible, the Galatians would have given their own eyes, given them to Paul. What he's saying is that they, these Galatians, they were committed to Paul. They were committed to Paul as a fellow brother in Christ and as believers of the gospel that if anything, they would have even given up their own eyes to Paul as an expression of their loyalty to Paul and the gospel. In other words, these Galatians, they embraced this gospel. They once believed that, yes, Paul, we agree with you that we can only be saved by faith in Christ alone. And now then for Paul to hear that the Galatians are abandoning the gospel to a false one, He then concludes with this thought with another rhetorical question. Look at the end of verse 15. He says that, in light of this Galatians, have I then become your enemy? Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? In other words, has Paul become an enemy to the Galatians despite their past history together? By telling the truth of the gospel both now in his letter and in the past when they first believed? And this is significant to think about, loved ones. Because if, because if Paul experiences such denial by those he first brings to faith, do not be shocked, loved ones. Do not be surprised when you experience the same thing in your own lives, especially as you share and live out the truth of the gospel in our post-Christian age. Because being a Christian in our own culture no longer grants, grants you this social capital in the culture. If anything, you just only have to read the news just, just to kind of get this, get, get, get this um, feeling or get this temperature from the culture. If anything, Christians are seen as a liability due to our exclusive and intolerant beliefs about the gospel. Even if you communicate the gospel with your lives by speaking the truth in love, do not be shocked if you're still treated as an enemy. Whether it be from your family members, friends, or the culture by and large, 
And yet we look, we think about it like, man, that's horrible, right? That's so unfair. And yet think about Christ. We look upon, we look upon Christ, our Savior, the greatest example of lovingly disagreeing with people to point them to the truth of who he is, right? That he is the way of salvation. And yet what did people do to him? They crucified him. As a result, as likewise then, a servant is not greater than their master and so loved ones. You must remember the sweet hope that you have in the gospel, that you have received the greatest need spiritually for your lives, and that is forgiveness of your sins. That God so loved you that while you are still his enemy, he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for you, and by your faith in him, you are no longer condemned in hell, but you have new life in Jesus so that you can walk in obedience to him now, but also reign eternity with him in the new life to come. You must never forget that, because it is when we are most prone to deny Christ due to the various outward pressures of life or the trials of life that you must stand firm. You must stand firm on the foundation of your faith, and that foundation is the living hope that you have in the gospel of Jesus Christ right now. And so how do we do that? How can we really this, this, this grow in our understanding and our appreciation of the cross of Christ? I just challenge you, all the days of your life, do not grow tired of the cross once again. Meditate daily on the precious truths about the cross of Christ. Thank the Father for electing you, that God, thank you that you have elected me in eternity past to save me. And yet, don't, don't just thank the Father, thank the Son. Thank God the Father for sending God the Son to justify you, to, that he laid down his life for you, that he died as a sinless substitute so that you won't go to hell, but because Christ died on the cross, he died in your place. He appeased the wrath of God so that you will not inherit that damnation because Christ did it in your behalf. And, and just don't thank the Son, also thank the Spirit. Thank him for giving you a new heart to be able to even understand the gospel, to believe in the gospel, and now walk in the newness of life that comes with the gospel. It is when we thank our God, our triune God, Father and Holy Spirit of what he has done for us on the cross of Christ, our salvation, that you are able to flourish in your relationship with him. This is not just a spiritual reality that we, just, we should just only appreciate when we first come, become Christians. This is something that we should grow in our understanding each and every single day and find our rest and find your encouragement each and every single day as you grow in your walk as Christians. Because no matter how life no matter how bad life gets or how much I'm um, like, man, I'm just the scum of the earth. I'm the chief of all sinners, right? And yet you can look upon the cross and like, you know what, Lord? I am a, w- a wicked man or a woman. I do not deserve this great gift, but out of your great love for me, you have given it to me as a gift and I can only but thank you, God. Give you a hallelujah. Embrace your son by faith. Repent and walk in this newness of life that you have first given to me. That is how we ought to appreciate this good gift of the gospel as we see in the cross of Christ. It is by remembering when you first believe the gospel that will guard your hearts to not be deceived, but stand firm in the living hope that you have in the cross of Christ. This is what Paul does in his first appeal to the Galatians so that they can turn from their rejection of the gospel back to the faith in Christ alone. This then leads Paul to give his second and final appeal to the Galatians tonight, which is this. Embrace your personal experience with the gospel. Where the first reason was to remember when you first believed the gospel. The second one is remember when you experienced the gospel. Embrace it. Embrace it. Look at your Bibles in Galatians 17 to 18. Paul writes, They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present 
with you. And so where Paul appeals to the Galatians' common experience and how they embrace Paul alongside his gospel, he now mentions the Judaizers here. And you're like, John, where do you get that from, right? Because it only says they make much of you. And yet in light of the broad, broad context of Galatians, it is this group of Jewish Christians or people who are Jews who, who, who came to Galatia and were telling these Galatians, like, Galatians, if you want to be a true follower of Jesus, you got to, yes, believe in Jesus. Yes, of course, we embrace that. But you also got to do good works of the law so that you can be accepted by God. And although Paul doesn't mention him by name here, he does explain what these guys were doing to the Galatians. He writes at the first part of verse 17, specifically that these Judaizers, they were making much of you, but for no good purpose. And what's interesting is that in the Greek, that this phrase, to make much of, it is actually a rich term in the Greek language. It actually captures this idea of, of someone being so interested in someone that you actually desire to court them. That you're so infatuated with this individual that you want to court them to have a relationship with them. And just to give a, an illustration from our culture, think about a man, a young man, a young, strong, handsome man courting a young, beautiful woman in the hopes to marry them. That's kind of how this word is being used here. Or maybe another example. Say maybe a teacher pursues a relationship with their students so that they can train them, so that they can teach them the content of whatever they want to educate them so that at the end of that relationship, the teacher has done their job of, of, of passing on knowledge to the student so that this student can do the same or, or, do, or do whatever they need to do with that education. It is this, this pursuing of this relationship um, that Paul is getting at here in verse 17. These Judaizers, they were pursuing the Galatians so that they would follow them. That they would not follow Paul, but follow them, follow their message, embrace their gospel that, yes, you need to believe in Jesus, but also you got to believe in, you got to do good works of the law. And that's why Paul says they do this for no good purpose. As Paul says at the end of verse 17, they want to shut you out that you may make much of them. In other words, the Judaizers are trying to exclude the Galatians from Paul so that, they, so that they will not just pursue God more, but they will pursue these Galatians or these Judaizers themselves. That is why Paul is so determined here to appeal to the Galatians. He is trying to get at their heart. He's trying to win their heart back to him. The Judaizers, they are not for the Galatians. They are against him. Why? Because they are sharing with them a false gospel that does not save. They can, be, they can have, you know, be the best rhetoricians in the day. They could be the nicest people. But the fact that they're trying to get you to follow them to embrace their false gospel, they are not for you. They are against you. If anything, right, it's Paul. It is Paul who is for the Galatians because he shares the good gospel with them. As he writes in verse 18, look at your Bibles, it says, It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. And so, Paul is, and so what Paul is getting at is that it is good to be pursued. It's good to be courted. It's good to be pursued. And so the act of the, of the Judaizers just pursuing the Galatians, there's nothing inherently wrong with that per se. And yet Paul's point is that their motives... It was their motives that was wrong. It was their motive to share the gospel, to share this false gospel to the Galatians. That was that is what was wrong with their pursuing, which at the end of the day, it's no, it's for no good good purpose. Where the Judaizers are calling the Galatians to turn from Christ to embrace their false message, Paul is appealing to the Galatians, like Galatians, when I came to you. 
yes, I came to pursue you as well, but I called you to repent of your rebellion against God so that you won't follow me, but so that you will follow God, that you would turn to Christ and believe in him by faith and faith alone. And so when Paul is just even bringing this up, he's really getting, try, trying to convince the Galatians, like, you think these guys are so much better? They're not. Their message is not only trash, but how they treat you is so selfish. And yet when I came to you, I was trying to get you to, return, to, to repent of your sins and to be restored with the very God you were made to live and serve. And yet, even when we keep that in mind, which is like, yeah, that's great. Good job, Paul. Yeah, people in our culture, they listen to something like that. And it's like, wait, that's, that's kind of jacked up. And this is our culture speaking. Because, hey, people should pursue their own truth to court whatever makes them happy in this life. It's this freedom to do so that, get, that leads to true happiness. To, to then limit someone in doing so is not only intolerant, hateful, bigoted, but it's just plain exclusive. And yet, when you read the Gospels, when you read the Bible, true freedom is not just simply having exclusive beliefs at the expense of others. Instead, refusing to understand other people's beliefs and then deny them anyways is truly exclusive at best, and if anything, foolish at worst. As the, to kind of help with this, as the American theologian J. Grisham Machen he observed 100 years ago, narrowness does not consist in definite devotion to certain convictions or indefinite rejection of others. But the narrow man is the man who rejects the other man's convictions without first endeavoring to understand them. The man who makes no effort to look at things from the other man's point of view. And so it is not narrow to hold to certain convictions at the expense of others. True narrowness, in a sense, is when a person denies another person's convictions without first understanding them. Because at the end of the day, everyone is exclusive in their faith assumptions about the world. The question that everyone should be asking, especially if there's anyone here who doesn't believe in the gospel, is your devotion to certain convictions true objectively? Or is this only true for you subjectively? Is this something that corresponds with reality, with, with, with a standard like the Bible? Or is, this, or is this just something that makes you feel good on the inside, right? You must be able to account for this question, because if you cannot, then you must begin reevaluating your, your, your beliefs. And that's why as a Christian, I believe that my faith in Christ is true. Not because I say it's so, or I because I made it up, because I look at the historical eyewitness accounts of the Gospels, and it tells me what has objectively happened, and it tells me what is true. Not because I made it up, because if anything, it's making me. It's making me more like Jesus. And so it's with all this in mind then, that as Paul is just communicating to the Galatians that you must return to the gospel, he then really reveals his pastoral heart. He, 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 he really shows his care and concern for the Galatians. Look at these final two verses in your Bibles in verses 19 to 20. Just look at the heart of Paul here. And out of all he said, he says, My little children, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. And so we just see Paul's heart here for the Galatians. That although, if you read Galatians, he's very upset with them, he's, he's very um, angry, he's very intense. And yet we read a passage like this and we see, like, you know what? Paul was not just a big brain theologian, he had a, a heart 
he, he was a teddy bear. He, he cared for the Galatians. It broke his heart to hear that his own sheep, his own spiritual children that he brought to the faith, that they were walking away from the gospel and even almost turning their face against him. It was horrible. It was hard. And yet, I think this is just one of those experiences that we all experience. If, 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 if there's anyone that you haven't experienced this, then I think it's only a matter of time because this is something that, ju- that just happens living in this world, especially as Christians in this world. And what's interesting is that this is the only Paul uses this expression in all of his letters, my little children. It's actually a common expression that the Apostle John uses in his writings. And so the fact that Paul writes this here, again, he's just indicating his affectionate relationship that he has with the Galatians. Similar to how maybe a parent shows affection towards their children or a pastor to their sheep, Paul has such affection with the Galatians. Since he first brought them to faith, he experiences the, the, the spiritual birth of childbirth that he just wants the Galatians to be fully glorified. I just, Galatians, I want to see you to become more like Christ. I want to see you one day in heaven. And yet the fact that I see you turning away from the gospel, I'm not sure if that's going to really happen, right? I'm not sure if you're even saved. Because if you turn away from the gospel, then I hope oh, they were never saved in the first place. Um, my work was in vain, you know. Man, I don't even know what to do with these guys. Like, 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 like what is wrong with these people? And that's why he's just experiencing, like, these birth pangs. As a pastor to his beloved sheep, he just wants them to turn to Christ. He wants them to stop this nonsense, to stop this foolishness, and to embrace their living hope that they have in Jesus. If I may quote Galatians 2.20 again, to summarize Paul's message of what he's trying to get at the Galatians, he says, Galatians... Or my loved ones today, have we not been crucified with Christ? It is no longer I or we who live, but Christ who lives in us. In the life that we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loves us and he gave himself for us. Paul desires for the Galatians to return back to the spiritual truth, to die to themselves and to embrace Christ fully as Lord, fully as Savior, and that they will live not by their own good works, but by their faith in Jesus, so that they will remember that my hope is not in, what, in, in my performance, but is based on the performance of what Christ has done on the cross, who loved us and gave himself for us. And this leads to a beautiful reality of the gospel itself. That when you think about Christ himself, right, when, when you look at this passage, right, in Galatians, that he loved us, he gave himself for us, this is what Paul is calling the Galatians to return back to. When you see the heart of Paul to the Galatians, you see a small picture, not a perfect picture, because Paul was still a sinner like you and I, but you see a picture of the heart of Christ. You see the heart of Christ in heaven towards sinners on earth. And what this points to is that, that although you and I, we all deserve eternal judgment in hell. If there's anyone here, we are not born inherently good. I don't care what pop media says, we are not born good. Just look at the world. Look at human history. We are jacked up. And if we're honest, at the end of the day, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. The greater God who made all things perfectly, who made humanity in his image to glorify him, it is our first parents, Adam and Eve, that they, when they had a choice, they rebelled against God, they brought sin and death into the world, and the consequence for sinning against God is not only death in this life physically, but eternal death in the next spiritually. That is what we all deserve, and that is the bad news that befalls all of us. And yet the good news of the gospel is that God so loved the world, that God was a God of love, that he wanted to showcase his glory of mercy and compassion and grace that he sent his eternally begotten son Jesus to add humanity 2,000 years ago. 
That's why we remember Christmas, to remember the, 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 the glorious miracle of the incarnation that God added humanity to himself so that he would redeem a people back to God. And Jesus, the God, and he lived a perfect life, and he ultimately would die on the cross so that all who believe in him by faith as Lord and Savior, you will not perish in hell for your sins, but you will have everlasting life. And how that works, right, as Paul has been showing us beautifully throughout his letter to the Galatians, is that when you believe in Jesus, all your sins is placed into Christ's account, and, and, when, and when Christ dies on the cross, he dies as a curse of God's law, the, 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 the punishment that you and I deserve for sinning against God, death, Christ bore that on your behalf on the cross. If you believe in him by faith and will repent of your sins. And, and he pays your, pays your full sin debt in full so that God is just. And yet he also justifies you so that in exchange, it's like a bank account exchange, your sins are placed in a Christ account, dies on the cross. Christ's perfect righteousness is placed into your account. Not that you earned it, not that you're worthy of it, but as a gift you received it only by your passive faith in King Jesus. And we know that's true. We know that we're not a people to be most pitied because when Christ died and was buried, three days later, he rose again from the grave. That is an historical fact. We experience it personally by believing in the gospel, but all that is grounded in, in, in a historical reality as testified in the Bible. So if there's anyone here who does not believe in Jesus, who has not repented of your sins and placed their faith in King Jesus, I exhort you. You must this day, if you not just want to experience true happiness or true blessedness or human flourishing in this life and the next, but you must if you want to have a relationship with the living God that you were made to have. It's only through King Jesus that you can have new life in him. As Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30, he says to all, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you want rest, any unbeliever here, you can only find it in Jesus. My brothers and sisters, if you need rest, remember the cross. Find it in Jesus. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and, le- and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. That is the heart of Christ towards we as sinners on earth. And, he will, and we will find rest for our souls in him because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Because he loves us by giving himself on the cross for you, you have new life, rest, peace, and joy in your relationship with Jesus as, as Lord and Savior. And as, that, and as a result of all that, right, Paul closes this section by saying that, Galatians, I wish I can have this talk with you face to face because it's just hard to be able to write all these things through letter. And I'm not sure about you, but... I don't mind using email, um, phone call, or you know, text message, but I like talking to people personally, right? Especially when it's about hard topics or difficult topics. Like, you know, what? We, we need to talk face to face. We we we, I, I, we need to be in person. Presence is so key. It is far more better to talk face to face, not only because of that personal aspect, but also too, you won't you won't get miscommunicated or misrepresented through a medium like you know writing or you know communicating through like a cell phone and stuff like that. Paul didn't want to be understood, and that's why he's like, I don't, I don't really know what to do because I don't want, I'm trying to be so careful that I don't want my words to push you away farther away from the truth, Galatians, but I don't want to say anything that doesn't bring you to the gospel, right? Paul's being very careful with his words, um, and so that's why he says this, and yet he still speaks the truth out of his love and affection towards the Galatians, and we're just going to see how Paul keeps communicating these truths in the rest of the letter as we get to chapters 5 and 6. In light of all that he has said, to become like me, Galatians, 
This is what I'm going to say to you for the rest of the letter of how you should apply this, this, this goodness of the gospel to your life so that you will stop trusting yourself so that you would embrace Christ by faith alone. That's how Paul is going to build upon and finish the argument in his letter to the Galatians. But as we kind of wrap up and, and, and keep all these things in mind, just one final exhortation. One final call, and it's really a warning to all of you loved ones, and I wish more, uh, more of you were here to hear this, but all of us must take heed of the, of the temptation of apostasy. All of you must take heed that there might be a day that you might be tempted to deny Christ when the cost of discipleship is high. Because at the end of the day, we got to ask ourselves the question, what are you pursuing more and more each and every single day? Are you pursuing Christ? Are you courting Christ? Are you making much of Christ as he has done of you through the cross, the gospel? Well, are you living a life of pursuing the world, courting the world, living for the world? Because if, if I'm honest, we have it easy as Christians in America, right? And yet it's only a matter of time before temptation or persecution will get raised up. And yet God's grace is sufficient for your loved ones. And yet how do we best prepare for that day when it does come? Who do you love? Who are you growing in your love each and every single day? As the Apostle John says in 1 John 2.15, he commands, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And he's talking about the, sin, sin, the sinful desires of the world. Um, everything that is wrong and wicked with the world. John says, don't love those things. Rather, get those things out of your heart by not just ignoring them or you know, retreating into your own bubble just to like, eh, I'm not going to deal with the society. I'm just going to protect myself. No, that's not the answer. If you really want to get this love out of the world so that you just love God more so that you, that you abide even under the, the heat of persecution, you got to replace that desire for the world with the greater desire of God. you got to take this love of the world out of you by filling your mind with the scriptures, praying to God each and every single day, surrounding your people with, who love Jesus so that they can help you know God better, leading you to love him better, and living you to walk in obedience to him better. And, and, and even when we do that, we're so weak and fragile creatures, but that's why we don't depend upon your own strength, but we depend upon the strength that we have in the Spirit, which is only given to us by your living hope that you have in the cross of Christ. And so therefore, loved ones, never abandon your hope in the cross of Christ. Remember when you first believed the gospel and embraced your personal experience with the gospel itself. When you feel in your heart the pressure to walk away from Christ, remember your experience when you first believed the gospel. And I'm not saying that it will guard your heart from facing doubts about the faith because there might be those times when you do. I know I have in my Christian walk so far, and yet this will guard your hearts and minds to at least take every thought captive to obey Christ so that you do not regret at the end of your life that you miss Jesus, but that you long for him all the day more as your living hope. And so with all that in mind, loved ones, Let's go before our Lord in prayer, and we will get ready for the Lord's Supper.